Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is in the New Testament, one of the epistles of Paul, written to his protege, a young pastor named Timothy. And as you do so, I'll mention, our text this morning is going to mention aspects of Christ's identity as the offspring of David. And that will have certain overlaps with this evening, as we are continuing in the evening series to look at the life of King David, moving through 2 Samuel, specifically this evening, David's response to a very heinous injustice that was committed under his oversight. And in that, we'll see something of the love of justice that God desires in his people, but also the limits of human justice. And that's very important that we dwell on when you think of how far short human justice often falls, that the Lord teaches us not to put our confidence in human princes, but in Christ. He is the king. And that is very much what our text ties into this morning. Now, as I mentioned, this is written by the Apostle Paul, a missionary in the first century, chosen by Christ to go and establish churches throughout the Mediterranean area. And he's writing to a young pastor who's going to face all kinds of difficulties for his ministry and for his faith. Paul himself is on the tail end of his ministry. This is fairly close to the time when he is going to end up dying through persecution. Hear together with me what is on the mind of the Apostle by the Holy Spirit in verse 8 of chapter 2 and following. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Father, this morning we ask you that you would please minister to your people through your word, that for the sake of your elect, you would please cause the word to bear fruit in our hearts, that you give us understanding, shield us from error, enliven us with the same power which raised Christ from the dead, And everything draw from us the praise, the gratitude, and the response of holiness that you deserve. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is a mercy often overlooked that God, in providence, has chosen not to afflict all people with the same degree of suffering at all times. Even in your own life, you have times where the suffering is more intense and then other times where you have a relative time of relief. And that is the mercy of the Lord. That's not something that we are entitled to. And as believers, we have an added assurance on top of that. We have assurance from the word that there is nothing that you face, no affliction, no trial, no opposition, no inward temptation or outward temptation. 
There is nothing set before the believer which goes beyond what we can endure in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that in any situation, the Lord provides a way of escape. That escape may be external, or it can be, in some context, an escape into who we are in Christ. There is never, for that reason, anything that goes beyond what we may endure. On the other hand, it is a fact We do often, sincere believers do often feel that what we are experiencing is beyond what we can endure. Or you really question, how am I going to be godly in the midst of this? Or maybe at times even, how am I going to continue to be a Christian? In the months and years ahead of you, there is a likelihood. I say not because of anything about any one of you particularly, but just what we are as people and what history has shown us. In the months and years ahead of us, there is a likelihood you will experience extreme temptation to fall away from faithfulness to Christ. How do I know that? Well, consider what the apostle himself reports in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we are hard-pressed on all sides, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. If an apostle can feel perplexed, don't be surprised if you're going to as well. And Jesus, in calling disciples to himself, calls them to count the cost. I understand this will be a part of it. When Jesus says to a man in Luke 9, 62, who wants to follow him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying it's going to feel at times like plowing. It's going to feel like hard work, long toil to continue to endure as a believer. In our own context here in verses 3 through 6, just a little before our main text, verses 3 through 6, Notice Paul forms three different comparisons. He says that Christian endurance, true, genuine spiritual endurance, is going at times to feel like these three things. He mentions soldiers. He mentions athletes. He mentions farmers. Now, of course, each of those occupations have a lot of things that are different about them. But here, they all have certain things in common. He's saying that Christian life will have long periods of privation going without the things that you desire. Think of all that a soldier in the midst of battle has to give up for a time. There's at times an overwhelming fear of futility. Everything I'm doing, everything I'm investing myself in may not pay off. That's sometimes how the soldier feels on the ground. That's how the athlete feels. Maybe if they are way behind in the race, they start thinking back to the months and years of preparation. And is it all going to be for nothing? The farmer sowing out in the field and then knowing that there are months before you're even going to see if there's fruit. Paul is preparing Timothy for what is ahead of him. And the Holy Spirit through this text is preparing you, telling you, ready yourself. Get ready for endurance. And the way that you're going to endure is not just by taking it easy, imagining it's just going to come together, but real means. The means here this morning that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to is by looking at Christ in a particular way. Remembering Christ in a particular way. In verse 8, we remember, he calls us to remember Christ Jesus not only raised from the dead, but the offspring of David. And that's the part we're going to focus on because that's the part that I imagine many of us have not given due attention to. On Easter, what resurrection day have you ever, has it come into your thoughts, the offspring of David is raised? 
We often think of him risen, but we don't make the connection that Paul is making here. For some reason, Paul thought it was important to add that. The offspring of David. And the Holy Spirit is calling you in the midst of your trials, in the midst of enduring, to remember that the one who is raised is the offspring of David. Now, as we consider this, we're going to do so under two main divisions. Very straightforward. The first, and will probably be the bulk of our time, is to simply understand the doctrine, the teaching here. What does he even mean? What is he getting at? But then, secondly, practically, what difference does this make? How do you actually take this doctrinal truth and use it kind of like spurs to drive you on? We're going to see it does have that effect. That's why Paul is using it here. And so we'll look first at the doctrine and then at the practical aspect of this. Let's begin right away with the doctrine. What is the teaching here? What does it mean to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, of the offspring of David? First, just in case, we have a number of young children here. Offspring, not a word we use all the time. But this is a descendant, someone who is the great, 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 great grandchild of someone else. David is not the direct parent, of course, of Jesus, but he is his ancestor, and so Jesus is his offspring. Who is the David being spoken about here? He's very familiar, I trust, to many of us. He's probably quite unfamiliar to some as well. The David that is being spoken of here was a king of Israel. He lived around 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Jesus. That is a long time. And it's fascinating to note, even external to the Bible, there are records of David, though we would not need them to have confidence. But just in 1993, there was a, a fragment, a clay tablet that was dug up, and it's called the the Tel Dan Stele. 1993, it's dug up, and it has words on it. Basically, it's a document from an Aramean king, a king in the same area of the world, who's boasting that he defeated the house of David in battle. Scholars generally agree, this is not just Christian in particular, but scholarship says that stele, that tablet, is dated to within 150 years of the time when David lived. So the house of David attested, but in the Bible... In the Bible, David is recognized as a particularly godly king. In some ways, he prefigures Jesus. He's called a man after God's own heart. Now, how does this begin to play into what Paul is talking about? What is Paul saying about the resurrection? This begins to take shape in a promise that God gave to David toward the end of David's life. The Davidic covenant. A covenant is simply a solemn promise. A solemn promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I don't ask that you turn there, I do recommend that you turn to Psalm 110, because we'll look there in just a moment. Psalm 110, because that gives a little bit of clarification about the promise in 2 Samuel 7. Basically, 2 Samuel 7, this is in a historical book. Towards the end of David's life, God sends a prophet to speak with David. David had a desire to build a house or a temple for God. At that time, the Lord's presence was dwelling in a kind of tent, the tabernacle. David wants to build a permanent house. And God sends the prophet Nathan to tell David that God wants to build a house for David. 
But what God is talking about is something far better than bricks or stone. He's talking about an everlasting place of communion and dwelling with the Lord. He's promising in some way to establish salvation for David. And the Lord explains that it's going to come through one of David's descendants. And that that descendant of David, a true human being, is somehow going to bring about an everlasting reign, have an everlasting throne. 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 and following, the Lord says through the prophet, I will give you rest from all your enemies. What good news that was to David who had spent so much of his life literally fighting or on the run from enemies. But David himself knew that his deepest enemies were not outside and tangible. They were the wrestling with sin, with condemnation, with the spiritual enemy who had sights so much against us. And the Lord says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now David had a son, Solomon, who had a great kingdom, But Solomon's kingdom, in many ways, falls far short of what this prophecy is entailing. Even just the simple fact that it didn't last forever. David seems in his own lifetime, through the work of the Holy Spirit, to have recognized Solomon was not that king. Solomon was a shadow in some ways of things to come, but he was not the offspring being spoken of. Psalm 110 is one of the many instances where you see different prophets, and David was a prophet as well, one of the instances where he's bearing witness to the greatness of this offspring to come. First, verse 2 and verse 5 says, speaking of this one who is to come, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Whoever this offspring was, here and in dozens of places in the Old Testament, the expectation is that when he comes, somehow, he is going to bring God's righteous judgment against all nations, All people, all individuals, perfect judgment. And as well, bring deliverance for God's people, those who know the Lord, deliver them once and for all from their enemies, that they would finally have rest. The greatness is even greater than any human can simply be, and it's attested in verse 1. Look with me there. David again writing. And when you see all caps, by the way, in your English Bible, this is... Simply a way of letting you know this was the covenant name of God, Yahweh. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And that raises a question. How can a descendant of David be the Lord of David? The Lord said to my Lord, how can the descendant of the king of Israel be Lord over the king of Israel. 
And the book of Hebrews explains this very plainly, that this is one of many glimpses that grow brighter and brighter as you near the coming of Christ, letting you know that he was going to be more than a mere man. That this was going to be God coming among us, taking on himself our human nature, so that he's truly a descendant of David, but truly David's Lord. Isaiah 53, or Isaiah 9, 6, another passage. This is written about 700 BC, by the way, long before Christ. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. What believers under the Old Covenant were looking forward to was that one of the offspring of David would be raised up as a king in this actual world, over this actual world. Not just spiritually in a vague sense, but as it says in the Davidic Covenant, from your own body, flesh of flesh. And this is where it then ties back. Don't get lost in all this. This is where it now finally ties back into what Paul is saying to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. He's saying not simply that, you know, this is a scientific anomaly. Well, because maybe someone in the world can get on board with that. They say, well, I'm open to the possibility that there was a human being who rose from the dead. You know, we don't know everything about biology. Or maybe they are okay even with the idea that, oh, there's this divine realm out there somewhere. People are spiritual in a dozen directions. And, you know, he was raised and he was taken away. And he's a good example of what we maybe will experience if we're very, very good. That is not what the Bible is getting at. When Paul says, my gospel, you have to think, what did Paul preach? And he's preaching that this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who lives in history, who's attested in the Bible and outside of the Bible, this Jesus is the heir of David, and therefore he came to fulfill all of those things spoken about him. That he would be the one who brings judgment against all sin, rids the world of all sin, who humbles the nations, establishes an everlasting kingdom, first spiritually in his church, finally visibly in all of the world that he would deliver his people. Remembering that he is raised means he will make good on his promise. If he was raised, then certainly he shall do the things that are spoken of him. Matthew 25, in fact, I invite you to look there with me. You'll see where Jesus speaks about this himself. Matthew 25. Jesus spoke these words before he was crucified. And at verse 31 we read, speaking of himself, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. If you had been standing there at that moment, you'd see a poor-looking Middle Eastern man surrounded by fishermen. 
when I come in my glory, I'm going to sit on a throne surrounded by angelic beings who are described in such a way in Scripture that those who see them fall down to worship them. And it sounds ludicrous. And yet he says, verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations. Not just then, this one too. All the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. But skipping forward to verses 41 and 46, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment. It was one thing for Christ to say that before he was raised. But then imagine being among those same people and seeing him raised in glory. After the resurrection, seeing angels bear witness to him just before he ascends, or rather just after he ascends, says that angels say to the men, why are you looking for him? He is not here, but he shall come again, just as you saw him go. If Christ is raised, he will make good on every Davidic purpose in the Bible. And this becomes intensely practical. For when you consider him and what it means to remember him, remembering Jesus is not remembering a good moral example that you're going to try to be like. I want to be more loving. If somebody slights me, I need to turn the other cheek. That's part of it. But it is much more than that. It means living and understanding, holding before yourself the knowledge. How you live will have actual everlasting consequence for yourself also for others. And this brings us to our final division, to look for a moment at what it means practically. I mentioned to you before that Paul sets this before Timothy, kind of like spurs. And you think a horse might have spurs on both sides, and here there are two sides to this. Each of these will drive you forward in different ways. They will only drive you forward in faith. That is, they won't do anything for you if you don't believe. But through faith, they do both act as spurs. On the one side, you have to take to heart the price of apostasy, of turning away, or of simply having never come to Christ. But here, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he's telling him, keep going, keep going. If Christ is raised, and he is, then there will be an account given. And there are others who turned away. Paul talks about one of his colleagues, a man named Demas, Demas traveled with the apostle, and yet he still turned away. And Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, for he loved this world. Apostasy doesn't necessarily mean speaking badly about Jesus or Christianity. It means forsaking the way of faith and discipleship. Stifling in our hearts the desire to submit to the Lord, to love him more than anything in this world, to wrestle with that forever in this life, knowing that there is relief But what does it say in verse 12? If we deny him, he also will deny us. This is being taken from something Jesus says in the Gospels, where he says, if any man denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. We are not 
made acceptable. We don't merit God's acceptance by our profession. But it is a sure mark of the reality of what is in your heart if you don't cling to Christ. Now, also you have to bear in mind, people do fall and Christians fall. Peter himself denies Christ three times on a night. But here we're talking about what characterizes a life, a path. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. There, that's not meant to say, even if you're faithless, don't worry, he's got you. He's faithful. It's saying, no, no, he will make good on his promise. He will judge sin. And all who stand outside of him, who show by their lives that they do not know him, he will be faithful. And that should act as a spur to take seriously this call. It's, we don't just be Christians when it's comfortable. We especially are Christians when it's very uncomfortable. Jesus says, take up your cross, follow me. A cross is the definition of discomfort. If the Christianity that you live never feels arduous, toilsome, fearful, at times that you never feel scorned by others, you must ask, if not that you're not yet a believer, whether or not you're really in the fight, whether or not you are really, you know, it's like soldiers on the field and then you find out that somebody hung back and they're playing cards over in the trench. You say, we are out here dying. Get out. You have been called into a fight. You've been called to a harvest, to toil. And if you do not, is it not going to be like the soldier who's caught AWOL? Is it not going to be like the farmer who, when the landowner comes, finds that he has put off the duty and there is no harvest? And so we're warned. One very notable theologian of the 20th century, Benjamin Warfield, he made this comment. We must beware, because Jesus is described as bearing with patience the sufferings that he came to endure, of then picturing him to ourselves as without the power of indignation or without the will to use it. The Jesus of the Bible will make good on the Davidic promises. That's one of the spurs. But arguably, it's not the main spur. You know, you think of a writer who maybe spurs sometimes with the left, but more often they just use the right. That's their dominant, and they they think that way. Here, there's no question that Paul lays greater emphasis on the other side of this, where he gives more text to it. Look at me at verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. Paul is telling Timothy, and the Holy Spirit is telling you, it is worth it. It is worth it. If we die with him, we will be raised with him. And the Christian death is often a long death with Christ. Decades of dying with Christ. But if you die with him, you will be raised with him. The world doesn't have any hope of resurrection. They might hope against hope. The Christian says with confidence, I will be raised. And if I am raised, if we endure, then we will also reign with him. And you think of the soldier again, pushing through to the very end and then enjoying the spoils of victory enjoying the freedom that they share with others, enjoying all that comes with the honor 
from their commander for their faithfulness. When the Lord calls you to endure, he calls you, set your eyes on the fact that Christ will deliver the kingdom. Everything spoken of that heir of David will be made good in this world. You need to prepare. And I say that not because I am some prophet prognosticating what is going to happen in this country or in your personal life. Simply as a fact, the Bible calls everyone to be ready. And it is true, we led with this, that God in mercy often spares us from the suffering that others endure. I can't tell you with perfect understanding why God allows some in particular to suffer so much while you at this moment can sit with relative peace here. But you can't take this moment and then presume that you will not experience harder things. In months or years to come, you may experience all kinds of challenges as a Christian. Timothy himself was experiencing being scorned by some from within the church. Imagine showing up to church knowing that people really don't like you there. Timothy was going through that. And he had reasons to maybe not want to be there. He had people outside of the church dragging his name through the mud, challenging him, at times physically threatening. We don't know how Timothy passes away. There's a high likelihood through persecution. In the months and years to come, you may be shut out from family, from friends, not because of bad character, not because you've become a stink in their lives, that you speak hatefully to them, but simply for not affirming all of their idolatries. Christ said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword that would divide the family. The world cannot be at peace with Christ. You may suffer financially. You may suffer physically. You may suffer your name. In those times, resurrection becomes real. You have to bring before yourself, Christ really was raised. This one life is very, 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 very short. Christ really was raised. I will put on a body like his, whatever they do to me. Once you pick up the cross, everything else feels relatively small. Somebody sending you a a mean email telling you that they don't want to speak with you anymore because of what you believe, you've already taken up a cross. You're ready to die. Once you reconcile with the real possibility that if God has allowed other Christians, and I I don't speak to shock, this is our history, that multitudes experience agonizing deaths, people flayed alive in this century for their Christian faith. Once you accept that God is sufficient and his grace will bring me through anything to have that, then you can endure Verse 8, once more, and then we'll close in prayer. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Brothers and sisters, your endurance is worth it. God is using it to carry his gospel forward. Keep going. Let's ask the Lord to help us in that.
Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. Christ is worthy of all honor and power and glory. We thank you that you have come among us, that you have humbled yourself to put on our nature. We thank you that you passed through all the temptations of this life, yet never once desiring or giving yourself to any of them. We thank you, Lord, that you were willing to suffer for us, our Lord Jesus, upon the cross, that you endured all for us, that you experienced a descent in order that we might ascend with you, knowing in your spirit the very depths of God's wrath. We ask that you would help us to bear up under these light and momentary afflictions, knowing the exceeding weight of glory to come. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.